All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we are. The plan is to get through verse 10 tonight. I think we've got three more messages in Timothy, counting tonight. And then I think my plan is to do a couple more weeks of our Q&A that we did a while back uh, to where you can submit some questions and ask. I haven't told anybody other than Pastor Kevin about that, so uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But we've got at least uh, three more weeks before that happens. <clears throat> All right, we can probably say this is the last section. This kind of begins Paul's conclusion, his final descent uh, down to the runway. Uh, and he's going to return to these false teachers once again. He's going to return to this uh, group of people that he's dealt with throughout the epistle, uh, and he's going to hammer it home one more time, repeat some of the principles that he's already talked about uh, in the letter. But let's go ahead and pick up and read our text. Uh, we're going to pick up at the end of verse 2. So teach and preach is where we're going to start at the end of verse 2, because I think that connects uh, and begins this last section. So teach and preach these principles. If anyone abdicates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. All right. So if you're picking up there, the one thing that he's bringing into the discussion that he really hasn't talked about yet is this materialism idea, this financial gain idea, using ministry for financial gain. And we'll talk about that a lot, especially in the second half uh, of the, of the uh, text tonight. But he starts with teach and preach these principles. Two imperatives, teach and preach. That word preach is not our usual word for preach. It's actually parakaleo. It's the same one we saw back in chapter 5, verse 1, when he said, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him. It means to appeal or exhort or encourage. So teach these things and encourage these things. Appeal to your people to do these things. When he says if any, uh, the, these principles there at the end of verse 2, I think these principles, it could be what he just said at the beginning of chapter 6. I think we can extend this all the way back to 5.1 and talk about all the principles he's talked about in dealing with these different groups of people in the church and, and how to minister to in a, a diverse church body, how to encourage a diverse church body. So in verse 3, Paul again turns to these false teachers, and he begins with an if, but it's not really an if, it's happening. But he's saying, if this thing is going on, this is what you need to do. And it's implicating these false teachers in their, in their heresies, in their heretical teachings. Now, contextually, remember, we are in Greece. 
We are in Greece with this church. And, I mean, we're, in, we're in, in Turkey, we're in Asia Minor, but it's, it's Greek culture. It's Greco-Roman culture, and the, the Ionian Greeks really populated that peninsula, and, and, and it, it was very much a Greek place, Greek culture, Greek architecture, Greek language. And the ability to speak compellingly, persuasively, is a very Greek thing. The Greeks really appreciated that kind of stuff. They had always been fascinated by the spoken word. They, they loved great orators. We still talk about great Greek orators, Cicero and, and the philosophers, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. Those are the heroes, the, the, the famed intellectuals of Athens. This is the, the, these are the descendants of those people, and so they like people that can talk compellingly. And apparently there are some false teachers here that can do just that. And so what do we have? A stage set for men who are skilled with words to take advantage of a, uh, an audience that is longing for people that have skill with words. I don't know what the equivalent is for us. Great athletes, great actors, whatever it is, we, we kind of make them into idols. It's the same thing here. But what's happening now that's different and why it's a problem is because these Greek methods are now being used inside the church to perform, to gain applause, and unfortunately to gain compensation. More on that in just a bit, as I said. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, that's actually one word. Advocates a different doctrine is one word. We've seen it before, right at the beginning of the letter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3. It's heterodidascaleo. How about that for a word? Hetero, different, didaskalos, teaching, different teachings, strange teachings. In 1, 3, he said, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. It's, if anyone is teaching a strange doctrine... Or if they are teaching anything that does not agree with sound words. That word sound is an interesting word. We've seen it one other time. But it's hygiene. It's hygiene. It's, it's a medical term. And so sound words, healthy words, it's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 5.31 when he said it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Not those who are sound, but those who are unsound. In the pastoral epistles, Paul uses it eight times, and he always applies it to doctrine. He said we need sound and healthy doctrine in the church. Healthy doctrine does a body good. Unhealthy teaching makes a body sick. And so Paul is wanting to deal with that. What are those sound words? Well, he tells us. It are those, it's those words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine conforming to godliness. Now, when we talk about the words of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't just mean the red letters. It certainly includes the red letters, if you still have a Bible that has red letters in it. But there's, a, there's that rainforest. Um, but when you, there's a whole movement out there, and perhaps you've come across it before, where they make a canon within a canon. They'll say, well, I believe the words of Jesus, but I'm not really into Paul. Well, that's an issue right? <laughs> That's a common thing. You'll hear that out in the world when you have these discussions. So when Paul says we trust the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't just mean the words that are recorded in Scripture. We also have the words that were handed down to the church through the apostles, including Paul himself. And so that does include the Gospels, but it also includes instructions on godly living. And Jesus is the Word, after all, and so we can argue that every word in Scripture is the very word that came from the mouth of Jesus. So if we rephrase this verse, it would, Paul would say, if anyone teaches strange doctrines, and the false teachers are doing that, 
And if anyone promotes unhealthy teaching that, that is opposed to the teaching of Christ and encourages ungodliness, which they are, and what did he say earlier? They do worldly fables and, and myths and old wives' tales. Then, what can we say about that person? Well, verse 4, he's conceited and he understands nothing. These false teachers, a false teacher that would do this is conceited and understands nothing. First, that word conceited, we've seen it once before, chapter 3, verse 6. Remember when we talked about the elders, and he said, don't make a new convert an elder lest he become conceited. It's that same word, typhao. You can see the word there. You can see our typhoon in that. Well, it has two meanings. It literally means to raise a smoke But it also means to be enveloped in a mist, which is where the typhoon idea comes from. And so it really has a double meaning. You think about raising a smoke where you can be puffed up, conceited. You get puffed up with knowledge as it is in that sense. But it also has this idea of being enveloped in a mist in which you become blind to the things that are happening around you. So pride both puffs you up and blinds you to the reality that's around So these false teachers are conceited in that their desire is not to display Christ, but to display themselves. They're missing the point of the gospel. Then he says that they understand nothing. Perhaps you can see epistemology in that second word. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do we know what truth is? And so maiden is nothing. So nothing understanding, nothing comprehending. Paul's already talked about the spiritual ignorance of these false teachers. Chapter 1, verse 7, he said they want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. In Paul's mind, those who depart from the gospel truth actually lack all spiritual understanding. Now, they may have an understanding of their false dichotomies, but they don't understand uh, spiritual truth. They are the fool of Proverbs fame. They have departed from the truth, and they have uh, embraced folly. One translator combines these adjectives together and calls the false teacher a conceited ignoramus. I like that translation. That's what they become. If he is these things, if he distorts the doctrines of Christ and and, and promotes ungodliness, he is a conceited ignoramus. I think we should use ignoramus in more common conversation. It's a fun word to say. Contrast this group with the faithful elders of 517 who are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And of course, the implication there of preaching and teaching is you are preaching and teaching objective truth of Scripture, not your own designs and understandings. Instead, the false teacher's pursuit is far less noble. What does he pursue? The second half of verse 4. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Morbid interest is from a Greek word, uh, verb, uh, noseo. It means to be sick. So he's saying they have a sick mind, a diseased mind. Perhaps there's a parallel to the depraved mind of Romans 128. which is an appropriate thing in this June Pride Month that's popping up all over your advertisements right now. In both cases, to borrow a phrase, sin makes you stupid. That's the idea. You keep going after these things and you get caught up in these morbid things, these controversial questions and disputes about words. Controversial questions, the word there is zetesis. It's really not that bad in and of how it stands. It describes debate or discussion, but considering the source of these debates, a diseased mind, a sickened mind, 
These are not fruitful discussions. They're malicious discussions. They're fault-finding discussions. It's translated in the NASB in 2 Timothy 2.23 as speculations, Titus 3.9 as controversies. I think what we need to see here from a modern perspective is there is a kind of Christianity out there, and I don't mean that in an authentic way. There's a kind of Christianity which is more concerned with argument than with life. There, there's, a, there's a Christianity out there that likes debate more than it likes ministry. And that, 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 that gets personified within ministry circles sometimes. And I would just say this, to be a member of a discussion group, to be in a Bible study, to spend hours in talk about things in the Scriptures that really don't matter, don't make you a Christian. There are a lot of knowledgeable guys about Scriptures out there, and gals as well, that don't have any genuine faith in Christ. And Paul's guarding against that. If they're, all they're talking about is the weeds. You know. Now, we can have conversations about, we were in Solomon's porch on Sunday, and we had a little extra time at the end. Barry, you were there, we talked about the Nephilim. Okay, that's the weeds a little bit, isn't it? Does it matter to our salvation? It has nothing to do with our salvation. It's a fun pursuit for a little bit. Let's talk about what that might be. But if that's all you ever talk about, and you don't talk about godliness, because what happens with Paul is saying these men end up talking about all the stuff in the weeds, and they never talk about practical application of the gospel in your life. All they talk about is this meaningless stuff. And so it becomes this academic, purely intellectual pursuit, and there's never any application that's not going to make us any more wise. It's not going to make us any more mature in Christ. One commentator describes it like this. He majors on minors. The more speculative the doctrine, the more tenaciously he debates for it. He not only splits hairs, but he tries to do so with a chainsaw. That's the guy we're talking about. The second word, he says, we have disputes about word. Really like this word. Logo, makia is the word. It's a compound word. We know logos pretty well, right? That's word. Uh, Makomai is a Greek verb that means to fight, and it usually is with armed combatants. It's usually used in military terms. So we are fighting with words. That's what these men do. They're instinctively competitive. They're suspicious of anyone who might disagree with them. When they can't win in an argument, they insult the opponent. Ad hominem attacks. And even at their character in that sense. In any argument, their tone of their voice is bitter, not love. They don't know how to present or present truth in love. And the source of that bitterness, Paul has already said, it's conceit. It's their exaltation of themselves. And they've been put on public display. They put themselves on public display, and they can't possibly be defeated in that arena. So better to take some cheap shots on the way down than to be defeated in a real theological debate. The tendency is to regard any difference in form or criticism as a personal insult, and so they go on the attack. They fight with words. In Paul's mind, these false teachers had done violence to the church community at Ephesus. Well, what are the results of such practices? Well, Paul tells us in the rest of the verse and into verse 5. Out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let's look at all those things that arise out of it. You don't need to know all those Greek words. I just kind of put them up there to keep my focus there. Envy. Envy, this is why the chief priests handed over Jesus to be crucified, according to the Gospels. This is in the list of sins of the depraved mind in Romans one twenty nine. 
And that results in strife. Also in Romans 129, strife and envy appear together. They also appear together in Galatians chapter 5. It means wrangling and contention and, and infighting. So if we put those two together, envy and strife, we see a scenario in which these men feel displeasure if they see someone else in possession of something that they don't have. That could be a spiritual gift. It could be the respect of the congregation. And he doesn't have it, and so he resents that fact. And so what does he do? He causes strife among the brethren. That produces discord. It produces divisiveness. And that's manifested in several ways. Abusive language. You see the word there, blasphemia. It's blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, slander, impious speech. It's malicious in intent. It's designed to damage. It's designed to hurt. We usually define blasphemy as words against God. And rightfully so. That's most of the time how it's used. In this sense, this is Christians, at least supposed ones, blaspheming other Christians. Lies, insults, mischaracterizations, what have you. He says, build on that with evil suspicions. This word is only used here in Scripture. But it is assuming the worst without evidence. It's blaming others without cause. That's another thing that destroys Christian community. Fellowship has to be built on trust, not suspicion. These evils characterize men of a depraved mind, he says. And they not only have a depraved mind, but they've been deprived of the truth. When people's minds are twisted, all their relationships tend to be twisted too. Which is evidenced by what? Constant friction. Constant friction. Really interesting word. I know I get, got kind of nerded out on some of these words this week. But it is, there are three words in this one word. And it's two prepositions, and it's one noun. And so it's dia para tribe, right? Dia is a preposition. Para is a tre- preposition. So it's off and around. And then tribas is path. Tribas is a path, usually a well-known or well-worn path. So what's always the advice? Stay on the path, right? That's what Gandalf tells the hobbits when they go through the forest. Stay on the path, right? Try to make shortcuts. It makes long delays. Just stay on the path. And so in this sense, we have someone who knows the path is there, but has diverged from the path, and now they're caught up in the weeds and the vines and the jungle and everything else. And, and so they are literally off the rails. Try to drive a train when it's off the rails. That's the picture that we have here. It's, that's why it's constant friction. It's just struggle. There's a path to be walked, but instead they want to go through the jungle. They want to go through the obstacles. Now everybody's frustrated. And this happens again between men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We're finally getting to that materialism. But what is it that they embrace? They embrace depravity. What do they lack? They lack truth. They're deprived of it. And what, as a result of those things, do they not understand? Godliness. It's impossible to know what true godliness is if you aren't basing your godliness off the truth and instead you are relying on your own depravity. And when we get to this idea of a means of gain, the materialism, remember Ephesus is a big city. It's a wealthy city. Remember when Paul gets there in Acts 19, the first big conflict he has is with the silversmiths who are making idols at the temple of Artemis. And he warns the Ephesians about greed in Ephesians 5.3. This must be an ongoing temptation in the city. There's a lot of luxury and wealth in this city. 
Guess what? There's a lot of luxury and wealth in our cities too. And so it's always a constant temptation. One commentator said, when reason is morally blinded, all correctives to unworthy behavior are banished and the mind becomes destitute of the truth. When we get focused on things rather than the truth, we get in trouble. And so what do these people start to do? They view religion as a means to an end, an end that benefits them in power and influence and finances as well. And these are the false teachers who exploited the church at Ephesus. That's who Paul is targeting. He's telling Timothy, you've got to deal with this. And these men have made the gospel a means to their finances. Remember, Paul had no objection earlier to giving money to a religious leader. But what was the qualification? A faithful elder who worked hard and, and was deserving of double honor in preaching and teaching. But he's opposed to the goal of materialism that was primary for the heretics. There's difference in providing for an elder and paying off a prosperity gospel huckster. Those are two very different investments. And it's interesting if you go through this and you put this side by side with chapter 3 and the qualifications for the elders and how all these qualifications for false teachers almost stand in direct opposition to the qualifications for the elder. Paul is doing that very intentionally and putting them up beside each other so that people can see that. Verse 6, Paul probably gives us the thesis of the, of the section. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The conjunction there, but, is better understood as an intensive conjunction, as indeed. This is a true statement. This is an affirmation of what he's about to say. Indeed, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The word contentment is really interesting. Autarkeia is the Greek word, and I, I bring it up because it carried some weight in the Greek secular world. Remember when, when Paul gets to uh, Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17? He runs into two groups of philosophers. Anybody want the gold star? Who were the two groups of philosophers? Anybody remember? The Stoics were one. The other ones, yeah. Or you said it. Epicureans, right. Remember, the Stoics and the Epicureans are the two sides of the spectrum. The Stoics are don't show any emotion, never get invested, the Spartan kind of idea, be laconic, be that kind of idea. The Epicureans said, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, enjoy life, live it up. Those were the t- that's how you find contentment. The Stoics said you find contentment by denying yourself. The Epicureans said you'd find contentment by indulging yourself. They were on two sides, and Paul comes in and comes down the middle and says, both of you are wrong. This is where contentment is to be found. Well, autarkeia, contentment, was a word that the Stoics liked to use. It was one of their key philosophical terms, and it expressed the essence of the ideal of being a Stoic, which was to be independent of external circumstances. That, that contentment to a Stoic meant in complete self-sufficiency. I have been master of my emotions, I am master of my desires, and I am entirely self-sufficient in myself. But what does Paul do? Paul says, you want to find autarkeia, you want to find that contentment, it's only found in one place, and it's in the middle of godliness. He, so, he, do you see how Paul twists that on his head? He says, you guys are looking for self-sufficiency. You want sufficiency, you've got to find Christ's sufficiency. That's where you'll find contentment. You will be searching forever if you go any other way, but if you ground yourself in godliness, you'll understand what real contentment is. It's almost like he stands up in, the, in front of the philosophers of the day and says, I'll tell you about contentment. I've found the destination. I know how to get contentment. Tell us, Paul. Oh, it's in Christ. It's in godliness. In Paul's mind, contentment is found in dependence not on ourself, but on God. 
And that God directs our steps. That's Acts 17. Remember, he talks about that. And that God gives us truth in that if we follow that in obedience, we will find contentment. Contentment is found in obedience to God's truth. So if you need a math equation for the math-minded people in the audience, godliness plus contentment equals spiritual gain, equals spiritual maturity, equals growth in Christ. Again, not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. John Calvin said, Godliness is itself a sufficient gain to us, because though it we, but through it we become not only heirs of the world, but are unable to enjoy Christ in all his riches. That's where you'll find contentment. And Paul's explicit here. Financial compensation and godly contentment are completely unrelated. No matter how many raises you get, no matter how big your salary gets, no matter how big your bank account gets, contentment is not guaranteed. And, and, and we see this, and I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll jump all over the Bible in just a minute. But Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity, as he says over and over again. Contentedness in the Lord is a scriptural thing. I think here's the go-to verse for that, Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. I mean, we've got to understand this because that verse 4 gets ripped out of context all the time and says he'll give you the desires of your heart. Just ask, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, go back and read Jeremiah 17, 9, and tell me what your heart's like. You don't want the desires of that heart. You want the desires of a new heart. And so what does he say? What's the first thing you have to do? Trust in the Lord. That's, that's paramount to salvation in the Old Testament. I trust in the promises of God. I trust in the law of God. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. That's to Israel. You're supposed to be here and being faithful and serving the Lord in this land that the Lord has provided for you. Delight yourself in the Lord. How do I do that? The Lord draws me to him. He gives me his desires, and then my desires are his desires, and God freely grants those desires because they're his desires, not because they're mine, not because he's obligated to serve me, but because I am delighting myself in the Lord. Where have I found my contentment? In the Lord. That's where my delight comes from. And so the desires of my heart are his desires, and if I commit my way to the Lord, trust also in him, he will do it. Do you see the faith? Do you see the obedience? That's where blessing comes from. And it's not a prosperity thing. That's not guaranteed financial blessing. That means the Lord will bless you. He will keep you. He will protect you if you'll trust in him. (coughs) Excuse me. One commentator said, Discontent is life's burglar. It robs every other experience of its God-given joy. And if you need a New Testament example, if Paul were to be a superhero, I think he'd be Captain Contentment. Uh, and if we need that verse, you want the contentment verse, and maybe some of you are running ahead of me. It's not about basketball or football or any other sport. <laughs> this is what it's about. And if we look at it in context, look what Paul says, Philippians 4. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be what? Content. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You know what circumstances he is when he wrote that? Prison. <laughs> Chains. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. (coughs) True godliness is a means of much spiritual gain because it promises benefits for this life, being content in all circumstances, and in the next, eternal security. 
Adding contentment to godliness would promote gratitude for God's grace in this life. That's what I'm content in what the Lord has provided me. Why do godliness and contentment represent such great gain? This is for we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. Since after a brief stay, and in eternity, this is a brief stay, we're going to depart this life just like we came into it. And it's folly to be more concerned with earthly matters than eternal matters. Material gain is pretty irrelevant. Greed is irrational when you look at it in the scope of eternity. It really falls apart. When John D. Rockefeller died, his chief aide was asked how much he left behind. And the man answered, he left it all behind. Or as Flannery O'Connor wrote in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, there never was a body that gave the undertaker a tip. We are not taking it with us. It's not he who has the most toys wins. Of course, where is Paul getting this from? He's going back to the Old Testament, and he's pulling this from Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Solomon says something similar in that Ecclesiastes 5, which I come back to a few times in this passage, verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. He said they didn't put pockets in the burial shrouds for a reason. He says in verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. (coughs) Now, Paul is not saying that's all we're allowed to have. (laughs) He's not saying you should be happy with food and one change of clothes. Now, if that's what he chooses to give you, you should be content. But that's, remember earlier he denounced asceticism. He said that we're not, we're not, that's not the path for everyone. But he's advocating contentment in place of materialism. It's contentment in the place of covetousness. It's contentment in the face of the ministry being used for means of financial gain. Of course, the way my mind works, a Disney movie came to mind. Remember in the Jungle Book, the great theologian Baloo said, look for the bare necessities. <laughs> look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. And we had strife in this passage too, so it just all came together for me. But let's listen to Jesus on the subject. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. So for somebody that might not want to listen to Paul, let's go to Jesus and see if they affirm one another. Matthew 6, 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. 
For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Paul would say, in godliness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't it interesting that Paul pulls from Job and then Jesus? He's got one narrative that he's pulling from the Bible coming together right before us. Now, I think we understand this idea as well. What is actually a necessity will vary somewhat in different societies. Depending on, again, back to that Acts 17, depending on where the Lord placed you and where the divisions were and what nation you were born in, your necessities are going to be very different. I mean, if you lived in a tribal society, you would have much fewer needs than if you live in our society. I mean, the fact is that most of us probably need a vehicle to get to work, to provide, to take things places. There are places you can live in this world where you don't have any need of a vehicle. So it, it, it depends. So there's not like, okay, here's the magic list. Here's what you need. But necessity will vary in different societies. But the fact is, no matter what society you're in, even if you're in that tribal society, all of us face the temptation of coveting more than what we need. We all have that common desire. And, and Paul use, uses the future tense here. We will be content. We shall be content. There's an imperative idea in that. It, it, it's directing Christians to practice contentment. When you have life's necessities, what are we complaining about? A bigger house, a bigger car, a better job, a better, you name it, more clothes, more whatever. That's what we want to be focused on, and that's our sin. That's our flesh. And godliness is the only eternal gain in this life. Greed is loss every time. And we'll talk about that in just a second, why greed is always a loss. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Understand when we go through verses 9 and 10, this is not a condemnation of wealth. It is not saying you're not allowed to have a savings account. It's not saying you're not allowed to be successful in whatever your, uh, your, your employment is. It's a condemnation of godless materialism. Now, now, I know that can be a fine line in a lot of those cases, but it's not a condemnation of wealth. And the fact is, this isn't a condemnation of the rich because it's often those who don't have that fall into the temptation even more. This isn't just now, you know, when James goes after the rich in his epistle and he's talking about these rich folks that are taking advantage of the poor in the congregation and using their wealth to promote themselves. That's one thing. Here he's talking about a love of money. Well, you can have zero money and have a great love of money. Right? So he's talking about the, the heart condition and what our desires are and what we're pursuing. And and. There wouldn't be, this wouldn't exist if we didn't see things in society like the get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> like, why is the lottery a multi-million dollar business? Why is that instant gratification of, oh, I'm, I need to get rich right now with as little work as possible? That we have this idea of, can I do this without anything getting in my way? And then what's the interesting thing when you study those people that win the Powerball and the lottery and all that? Over half of them are bankrupt within a decade. They go through money you couldn't spend all of if you, if you tried, and yet they do because their love of money is more than even their common sense in that. Proverbs 28.20 says, He who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. There's nothing wrong with receiving pay raises. There's nothing wrong with moving to a more lucrative position within your job. What Paul's talking about is the pursuit of money at the expense of people and at the expense of principles. 
That, that's what's being targeted here. And you can tell by how he lays this out, and I'm kind of calling this the pilgrim's regress. This is regressive or progressive, if you want to talk about progressive into worse situations. <clears throat> he says, first, men fall into temptation. Step one, when you have this love of money, the first thing that happens is you fall into temptation. First, wealth tempts. It's a lure. It's, it's a snare, and it causes people to cover, covet other objects, what other people have and what I don't. And, and, and greed has a way of causing people to look in directions that they might never have looked otherwise. Nobody just gets up one day and says, I'm going to steal from someone. <laughs> that comes from pride and covetousness and all that. After they fall into the temptation, Paul says they are trapped in a snare of foolish and harmful desires. So second, they become like animals in a trap. That's the picture Paul gives us. They're pursuing instant gratification, and they're trapped in that. The desires are foolish because instead of bringing gain, they only bring harm. They only bring pain. They turn blind eyes away from ethical questions. They refuse to think things through. Many learn the price of everything only as they lose their values. That's the problem. They're trapped in a snare. Sin is that snare. And then finally, if they keep pursuing, they plunge into ruin and destruction. That word plunge, buthizo in the Greek, it's to plunge into the deep. It's to sink. It's to capsize. It's the word that, uh, remember when, in Luke 5 when, uh, when Peter has the miraculous catch of fish and they pull the fish into the boats and it says the boat began to sink. That's the same word. It, it is plunging into the water. It's the cannonball into the swimming pool. It is sinking to the bottom. Complete destruction follows. So the word picture is something plunged to the depths of the sea. I think he has in mind both material disaster, spiritual disaster. They find themselves in circles where all of a sudden the rules are different and the peer pressure is pretty relentless. What was once unthinkable becomes natural. Ethics go out the window. Morals go out the window. Perhaps Paul is referencing, as some commentators say, a two-part descent that ruin speaks to their earthly life and that the destruction speaks to what will happen in eternity. Jesus would have said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's ruin and destruction. Verse 10, familiar verse. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul gives us a proverb of sorts here. And it's one of the most misquoted references in the Bible. Uh, scripture does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, if you've got a King James in your lap, you're going, wait a second, my Bible says love of money is the root of all evil. Well, we have to understand the Greek that's there, and it's not that the King James is wrong, it's just that it's expressing it in a way that we are reading it wrong. It, it, the evils there, or evil there, is a plural noun. And so if you wanted to translate it woodenly, it would be for the love of money is the root of all evils. Well, when you make, once you make evil evils, now you have particular things. And so it's all these kinds of evils. So a kinds of evils or sorts of evils is the more accurate translation. So, again, let's understand what's being said here. First, it doesn't condemn money. It condemns the love of money. Those are two very different things. Like we, we, we can't do things without money. We, 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 th there's nothing wrong with having money. It's the love of that money. The fact of the matter is 
again, that you need not be rich to possess a sinful love of money. So this isn't a condemnation of the rich. This is a condemnation of the love of money. Now, could the love of money be more infectious in a wealthy person? Well, sure. Jesus says it's easier for a a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. I mean, it's a difficulty when the stuff is distracting you, yes. But that's not exclusive to people that have stuff. Some people that don't have stuff have a very unhealthy love of money. Second, it doesn't state that all evil comes from the love of money. But if you have a misplaced love towards materialistic things, you can cause a great variety of evils. A love of money can cause you to do a lot of morally corruptible things. I mean, if we said, well, money is the root of all evil. Well, sometimes lust is the root of an evil. Sometimes ambition is the root of an evil. There's a lot of ways you can get to evil. Money just happens to be one of them. Money doesn't cause all sins, but it can cause a, a good many if you're, if you're caught up in that sin. Third, the wandering elders from, uh, from Ephesus who had sold out to this greed, who had embraced this materialism, were living proof of this. Because what have they been doing? They've been terrorizing the church at Ephesus. And so he's really pointing the finger at the guys that are there. The concern about materialism Paul had expressed in verse 5 had become a reality in these false teachers. And we don't have to go very far in the New Testament to find examples. Ananias and Sapphira are great figures of those that were caught up in the love of money and they were plunged into ruin because of that love of money. Why is the love of money so destructive? And I've got a few thoughts here. One, the love of money is insatiable in that it tends to be a thirst that can never be satisfied. Right? How much more money do you need? Well, just a little bit more. Right, a little bit more. Uh, uh, we we you have these conversations when you talk about something like giving in the church, and you say, and, and you'll run into somebody and they'll say, you know, I'd really like to give, but you know, we're kind of struggling financially right now. But when I get that promotion, then I'm gonna I'm gonna start giving then. And you know what happens? They get that promotion and then they change their standard of living and they still don't give. Why? Because it's a heart thing. Like I, there's no comp, there's no compulsion here. I'm not saying you have to give this amount and this percent, and it's not what it's about. But I think we can all argue Scripture's clear. We're to be giving. We're to be supporting the ministry. We're to be doing those things. And so if it's not built in when you're making $10 and you're not going to give a dollar, you're not going to give 10 when you're making 100, you're not going to give 100 when you're making 1,000. It's a heart thing. And, and, and so when you want more and more, it never gets satisfied. There was a Roman proverb that said that wealth is like seawater. It doesn't quench your thirst. It actually intensifies it. The more we get, the more we want. Number two, the love of money is founded in falsehood. I kind of referenced it earlier. It's founded on the desire for security. Once I get this number in the bank account, then I'll be secure. Well, talk to the people that were invested in the stock market at the Great Depression. 2008 wasn't that long ago when that stuff fell apart too, and I don't know if anybody's looking at their 401ks lately. I don't because it's depressing. It's not doing so well now. When those things happen, stockbrokers throw themselves out of windows in New York City. Why? Because they love money more than anything else. And if that money's gone, if that security is gone, and wealth just can't buy that security, it's not guaranteed. It can't buy health, can't buy love, can't buy fellowship, it can't preserve from death, can't preserve from sickness, sorrow. Money can't help. Number three, love of money is selfish. If we're driven by the desire for wealth, it's 
It's nothing to us that someone else might have to lose in order that I gain. If all it is is I got to get more than the next guy, then I don't care who I have to step on to get there. The desire for wealth fixes people's thoughts upon self, and others become merely a means of an end, or obstacles in the path to our own (coughs) enrichment. Now, that doesn't always happen, but the fact is, there's a possibility it could. And it often does. Number four, it's deceptive. Because it's based on the desire for security, but honestly... (coughs) The more things you have, and the more things you got to take care of, and the more things you have to keep track of, it actually leads to more anxiety than it does security. (laughs) Again, it goes back to those Wall Street traders and that sort of thing. The more we have, the more we have to lose, and the tendency is we get obsessed about what we might lose. So if we're more focused on that, then we actually get the opposite of what this finance uh, promises. Again, Solomon speaks to this, Ecclesiastes 5, 11 through 13. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. That's a lesson from antiquity right there. And number five, it's potentially dangerous. It may easily lead people into the wrong ways of obtaining wealth. And therefore, in the end, it's pain and remorse, not joy. I just kind of think about this. It's never poor people that go to jail for insider trading. <laughs> it's never poor people that go to jail for Ponzi schemes. Right? Those things are, are, are perpetrated by millionaires and billionaires. That's who does that. Uh, Adish, how about something that's, that's common in the world today? And it's the abortion issue. That has been how the abortion issue has been presented in the secular culture. That... Uh, a, a mother does not have enough financial means to provide for a child, and my finances and my, my, my personal comfort is more important than providing for a human life. And so my pragmatism, my materialism outweighs the value of that baby's life, so I'll just kill the baby. And that's accepted society-wide outside of the church, that materialism and pragmatism are dangerous. What are the results for these people? They've wandered away from the faith. <clears throat> Apoplanao is the word. Only here in Mark 13, 20, when uh, Christ says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. They have been led astray. So, if we go back again to another one of Christ's teachings, is it possible to pursue truth and money? <laughs> Jesus was very clear about that. God and mammon do not go together. People either renounce greed in their commitment to the faith, or they make money their God and they depart from the faith. They wander away from it. And this is especially tragic because they've walked away from the faith, most having never been believers in the first place. They had been given the gospel. They were exposed to the gospel. They had had a presence within the church, and yet they were spiritually dead. And they've wandered away from the faith for love of money. Secondly, he says they have been pierced. They have pierced themselves with many griefs. That pierced word is another interesting word. It's a compound word of a preposition and an adverb. It literally means through to the other side. Perry is to the other side and uh, pyro is to, to pierce through. 
So one commentator says, thorns of remorse and disillusionment that now lacerate them. They've inflicted pain on themselves. They've pierced themselves through with remorse and griefs. Certainly those griefs might be pangs of conscience, maybe that now they regret what they've done. But more than likely, it's personal misery that they felt and personal misery they've inflicted on others because of what they've done. There probably isn't a greater example in Scripture than Judas Iscariot, who accepted 30 pieces of silver to portray the Savior. Not a good exchange. Jay Gold, the 19th century American railroad magnate who died worth about $100 million, which at the turn of the century was even more than $100 million is today. And he died largely unlamented. And he said, apparently, his last words in his dying breath on his deathbed was apparently, I'm the most miserable devil in the world. But the world says, isn't this just wishful Christian thinking? Isn't this Paul just saying, hey, you know what, put up with the stuff today, and and, 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 in eternity everything will be great? Well, there's some truth to that statement. There's some truth in persevering through what's today, but of course that has been trumpeted and you hear it more and more today because we know Karl Marx's famous quote, that religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people or the opium of the masses. Marx's argument was that Christianity encourages the poor to accept their poverty and to acquiesce in the status quo instead of rebelling against it, like he wants them to do. And he says, well, that's just built on this flimsy ground that you're going to get to go to heaven one day. How could you believe that? Why would you live in those conditions? Fight for what you have now. Well, how do we respond to that accusation? Well, John Stott gives two important truths here that I think are applicable. First, as what we are talking about here, what Paul is writing about, is not destitution. He's not talking about people who can't get to the next day. That's destructive. That, that, that's something that needs to be provided for. But he's talking about a simplicity of lifestyle that is compatible with godliness. With, the, with that, we should be content, not with destitution. We don't want people starving and dying in the streets. That's, that's not something that we yearn for. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about having your basic needs met. Second, the contentment Paul is writing about is not saying, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah. That's not what Paul's saying. He's actually saying, be content and preach truth. Be content and seek to serve your brother. Be content and do ministry. You know, he's, he's talking about providing for those things. So it's not go and overthrow society. No, it's grow where Jesus has planted you and serve the Lord. Glorify him. Paul's emphasis is clear, and again, I think it's rooted in biblical principles. I think the verse, to kind of wrap up here, the verse that, that jumped out at me at the beginning of this, and I thought it was a good way to conclude, is in Proverbs chapter 30. And this is what is written. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or that I not be in wanton steal and profane the name of my God. That's the prayer of the God follower. That I don't want to have so much that I start trusting in my stuff and don't love you. And don't, don't allow me to be hungry where I might have to compromise my ethics in order to feed my family. I want to be right where you have me, Lord, and I want to trust you to provide for me. And I believe Paul agrees with Solomon. 
This is the contentedness idea. Now, now it's, that's, you know, when we think about Proverbs, we think about Solomon, and maybe Proverbs 30 isn't his, but in this, that whole idea, and we look at Solomon, and we go, well, Solomon, you're a pretty rich dude. Like, easy for you to say. No, but I think Solomon's learned some lessons. <laughs> I think Solomon has some wisdom from the Holy Spirit here. And I think this statement in Proverbs 30 sums up Paul's statement back in verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. What are those riches? Well, godliness that's made possible by the mystery of godliness himself. That's what Paul called Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16. And it's contentment from his all-sufficiency, Philippians 4. I, I don't get sufficiency for myself. I don't become the uber-Christian. I don't become the super-Christian. No, I depend on him more. I trust him more. I put everything in his hands more. And that relates to the giving. That relates to the serving. That relates to the trusting. All those things come together from his sufficiency, not mine. So the Lord Jesus Christ is all we need. We keep him at the center of our Bible. We keep him at the center of history, of our salvation. Then we've gained everything. He's our portion. He's our hope and stay. He's our Lord in this life and the next. It's, 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 it's trusting him now because I know I'm going to be with him for eternity. Why would I complain now when I've got eternity with him? You know, this is, again, if you're, uh, if you're in Christ, eternal life has already started. You're already on that road. And again, I think I've quoted this before. But if you're in Christ, you're living your worst life now. <laughs> You, that, that we have all this to look forward to in eternity. And if, he've, and if he has called you to himself, if he's redeemed you from your sin, if you belong to him while we were yet sinners, he redeemed us, then what else would we do? What better hands would you be in than that God, that Savior, that Lord? Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for the principles of godliness that you give us in your word. May we have the strength to observe them, to follow your statutes, to be obedient to your truth, uh, and to serve others, and to kill the desires of this world that so often rise up in our flesh so that we can better serve you, that we can proclaim your gospel with clarity, without hypocrisy. Uh, and I just thank you for the opportunity to serve you, Lord, for the opportunity to do ministry in your name. There is no greater honor in this life, and we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.